Following Jesus in the present age is a perennial task. Join me, Ian Panth, biblical scholar and theologian, as I walk through the Christian scriptures and think theology out loud. If you want to dig deeper into the Bible or engage in God talk, then this is the podcast for you. So last time I covered basically authorship, John, and the two main possibilities that it's a disciple or someone else named John with authority in the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, To me, as I said, this doesn't make a huge difference in how you interpret the text. Uh, I discussed the date and, you know, for this is my podcast, most of the time I'm going to give my opinion after having, you know, looked at scholarly research and and my opinion is that it's it's after the temple was the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD and probably sometime before 90 AD because if it is the apostle John you know if we consider even a long lifespan that's that's pushing it to make it 90 AD so somewhere in that era and that fits with the kinds of things we see going on with the churches that John's going to describe in the text. Um, occasional persecution from uh, officials' status in the empire, but but nothing. There's nothing systematic at this point, and and it's not overreaching. So um, there's nothing coming down from the emperor per se, but they did have this encounter with Nero that kind of is in the imagination um, already, and that that plays into some of the images John uses in the text. So, date, authorship, genre was the other thing that I covered, and basically prophetic literature is the dominant, one of the dominant genres, and prophetic literature in John's uh, revelation is think of it prophetic literature as God's throne room perspective uh, there are predictive moments in prophetic literature but if you're if you hear the word prophecy and you think predicting the future then you're missing a great deal of what uh, prof- the function of the prophets were in Israel and you're missing what prophecy is in the, the New Testament largely so think especially from in revelation it's getting god's throne room perspective on the world on this present age and subgenre of prophecy is apocalyptic which is the the style of language being used and certain features like a messenger from heaven uh, that kind of thing and these really fantastic images using uh, monsters, dragons, beasts, wars in heaven, that kind of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a style and a genre of speaking prophetically largely into one's present situation, but just like a, a novel or a movie that is written at, at a certain time and place addressing particular issues, that doesn't mean that it doesn't resonate and still speak into contemporary 
culture like during uh this present time in 2020 i mean books like 1984 are certainly resonating once again and brave new world uh, there's probably a reason there was a rise in dystopic literature in the last few years at the teen level it's just too bad that the dystopic literature didn't better form our imagination to resist dystopic tendencies in our culture but that's also revelation falls into that as well the first time i read revelation as a literature was not at uh, a theological school it was at university and uh, the professor included revelation as one of the texts in his course on utopias and dystopias so i read it alongside thomas moore and uh, brave new world trying to figure out uh Yevgeny zamyatin's we uh, so it is actually uh, within this genre kind of a dystopic image of this present age but with looking forward to uh, a utopian future where all the clashes of this present age are brought to an end into a place of peaceful res revolu revolution uh, peaceful resolution so that's Prof, prophetic literature apocalyptic apocalyptic literature or style and letter so the letter format was you know predominant in christian culture in the early years and that letters make up uh, half of our new testament um, in terms of the number of books it makes up more than half but in terms of the the volume uh uh, letters are what make up the bulk and again if you include revelation because it too is a letter uh, that contains letters so it's obviously written so revelation 1 4 uh, is a letter format a letter beginning a letter opening john to the seven churches that are in asia asia so identifying the writer the sender and the recipient john to the seven churches that are in asia so asia was a particular province of rome uh, don't think china vietnam it's it's a particular province in in rome uh, which would geographically encompass places uh, like turkey think of that region in for present day and so he's writing to the seven churches now the number of seven he's already told you this is an apocalypse and to be understood in prophetic literature and and so those who were familiar with this kind of literature and i assume that john expected his readers to be somewhat familiar with this kind of literature otherwise it would have you know been pretty pointless to write to them in this style uh, that he when he uses the number seven numbers are going to have a symbolic value alongside their concrete so he is going to write and mention seven churches specifically but seven in the israelite scripture in hebrew culture in the early christian culture seven had this sense it was tied to the, 
the creation, the seven days, and had the sense of completeness or fullness. So by writing to the seven churches, he's writing to all the churches. And, and you, we can assume, partly by the fact that it is included in our New Testament, the, the canon, that this went beyond the seven churches that the text was copied and passed around to other churches because what those seven churches were experiencing other churches were experiencing similar things so by speaking specifically to these seven churches he ends up speaking to the broader community in Asia Minor and uh, it, I believe the text still speaks to us today that we'll go through similar things unfortunately ways of reading history of interpretation of this text has uh, I think undermined or its ability to speak into the our current situations uh, so let's hopefully we regain that a little bit so again he continues with a letter format and here he seems to he adopts the greeting that many scholars think Paul is the creator of the ultimately responsible for so the you would begin like in English greetings from or greetings to and the Greek word for greeting is kyrene well Paul uses kind of a play on words and instead of saying kyrene he says charis which is grace so he begins his letters and John does here as well grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth so remember Jesus if you go back to the Gospels um, you know just look at the beginning of Mark and Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God right so this is already kingdom language grace is God's benefit the benefit that God bestows upon his people and the response and result of that benefit is this peace in Hebrew the word would be shalom in Greek it's arene uh, that it's this peace in the community so if you think in terms of Paul's way of thinking that that peace there was hostilities in the world between Jews and Gentiles and between the nations right there which again still go on today hostilities that the world places upon us um, between nations between different people groups different communities uh, races there's hostilities and entering into God's grace ought to bring about that peace uh, between peoples uh, and break down those hostilities so grace to you and peace and and then he gives a, a very Trinitarian uh, identification of of who the grace and peace are coming from so from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth what's striking about 
John here is most of the time in Paul and in other places and throughout the Christian history of the tradition, you normally have an order of Father, Son, Spirit. That's just became kind of the standard order for talking about the three persons. Father, Son, Spirit. Well, John, if you'll notice, he has God the Father, Spirit, and then the Son, Jesus Christ. And I think that's deliberate. Uh, but let's talk about each of these designations. So in verse 4, uh, God who is and who was and who is to come. There are a couple things that uh, are likely going on here. So one is in the broader Greco-Roman culture, uh, the, the deities, the gods could be referred to, like I think Zeus is referred to, he who was, who is, and who will be, which has the sense of talking about sort of e their e being eternal, the gods, he who was, who is, and who will be. Uh, but notice that John takes who is, so the immediate present, God is present. That's so important in uh, Israelite theology. God dwelling with his people. He is. He's, he is right now. And who was. He's the same God. The God who is now is the same God that has been from creation, has dealt with his people all along, or the God of the Exodus, uh, the God who was with his people in exile, and who is to come. So instead of saying uh, the verb to be, it's this coming language is a major theme in Revelation that God is coming. So in uh, the prophets, uh, when you talk of God coming, he's usually coming to rescue his people or to redeem his people. Or if you're on the other side, he's coming in judgment. But it's like the people are praying, come, like come and do something, be active in the world. So that's a key element in the, in the book of Revelation. So uh, John does this, who is and who was and who is to come. The other thing that's interesting here since I've already mentioned seven is throughout the text John will do these like particular designations he'll specifically use them seven times so who is and who was and who is to come and sometimes I think if he gets to a place where he actually has to mention something again he'll vary it so so that there are only seven occurrences of a particular phrase uh, that happens with multiple phrases, and this is one of the uh, phrases, and this is one of them. And uh, so I'm reading from the ESV, and they translate the next part, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, so that is a possible translation. It might be better to translate it the sevenfold spirit. And it, but it could be, I mean, this is apocalyptic language, so, and it, before his throne, so. You, I've mentioned that the throne room of God, so John's vision is going to take him up to see the throne room of God in, in the heavenly realms and then get that perspective on what's going on in the earthly realms, the lower regions. 
and you have this image of the spirit, the sevenfold spirit, uh, before the throne, like in front of the throne. And so there's a couple things going on here. It's because you've got the seven churches that he's going to speak to. Again, it's this idea of fullness. So it's the spirit in its fullness, but you also have the seven churches that the the spirit of prophecy is going to be communicating to these seven specific communities and in doing so speak to the larger community. Uh, there's also very likely in echoes here of uh, Isaiah 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. So what's one of the really interesting things about the book of Revelation is that there are no direct quotes from the Old Testament, from the prophet, the law, the prophets, or the writings. There's no direct quotes. Uh, you won't find, as it is written in the book of Isaiah, or as Zechariah Zachariah said, or as Moses said, you will only get allusions. And one of the things that uh, I think, if John is writing to these churches, he's assuming that they, they know their uh, scriptures really well. And at this point, the scriptures for them are the Israelite scriptures. So the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so he is assuming that they are steeped in these. And so they hear these echoes and he'll play with these echoes. So thing he'll, we'll get to specific examples of this, but he'll give um, an image that's clearly out of drawing from Isaiah, but there'll be a change in it, which which in a number of cases suggests a change between Isaiah's time, pre-Christ, uh, pre-death and resurrection of Christ, and post-death and resurrection of Christ. So we'll get, we'll get to some of those specific examples. But you won't find any direct quotes. You'll only find allusions. And we, I mean, books, uh, authors, who are well-read do this all the time, but I can give uh, a more simple, easy-to-grasp example in recent years. And film is a good place to see this done. Uh, filmmakers often make allusions to other filmmakers. Sometimes, by the way, simply by the way they set up a scene or set up a camera angle or do the lighting or maybe a little bit of music, like this fits perfectly with the example I was going to give. It doesn't, an illusion could be as simple in a, in a movie as a little sound cue. Like all I need to do is go and everybody knows this has something to do with a shark or a parody of a shark or some, something ominous, even if it turns into a, a, a joke, like in the movie airplane, when the fin of the, airplane cuts through the clouds right it's that's that's an illusion it's relying on you knowing this previous thing and then taking it and moving it in a different direction and that probably popped into my head because the example i was going to give is it it's not a great movie it's just you know it's a popcorn fun movie if you like this sort of thing uh is the recent film 
relatively recent film, The Meg, which is about a megalodon shark in the waters, you know, doing devastating things. Uh, it's not, in my view, it's not scary. It's, it's a monster movie, but it, it's not scary. But the thing that I enjoyed the most about it was all the allusions it made to Steven Spielberg's Jaws very deliberate and that was probably what I enjoyed most about the movie was these little references so having the dog uh, there's a dog in the movie that has the same name as the dog in the in Steven Spielberg's Jaws uh, there's a kid that's gonna uh, ask his mom if he can just go out and play in the water a little bit longer these are all little cues like if you've never seen Jaws you're probably not going to miss a thing, but if you have seen Jaws and you like Jaws, and as I do, then it adds a little extra to what's going on. So you could read Revelation and not know your Old Testament and probably get something out of it, but if you do know your Old Testament, you're going to get that much more. The images are going to be much more vivid, and you're going to see how John plays with those images to do something different or say something slightly new to his uh to his reader and his hearer so the seven spirits who are before his throne sevenfold spirit oh i was going to read um isaiah so isaiah too there's very likely like isaiah was such an influential book in the early church that um i'm not sure if it's in the church fathers or where i first encountered this but Isaiah was so influential, like Mark's gospel begins with, as it is written in the book of Isaiah, by the prophet Isaiah, that it was sometimes called the fifth gospel. So they were steeped in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 11, verse 2, especially in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, and many Jews didn't end up being able to speak Hebrew because of going through exile and being under the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. Greek became the kind of common language and is why our New Testament is in Greek. But the Christian early Christian scriptures were the, uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it's a little more clear that the connection of the Spirit being mentioned seven times. But if I just read from the ESV again, so there's it says the Spirit of the Lord, and then it repeats the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, and give these little, gives these little doublets. Um, and so there's a total of kind of seven mentions, seven characteristics. So uh, 11 1 there shall come from forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him that's one the spirit of wisdom and understanding that's three the spirit of counsel and might that's five the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord that's seven so uh, and this is text continues on to kind of describe uh, God coming and bringing this kind of peace to the world. It's, it's the text that has the, 
the child, the nursing child, shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his head on the adder's den, meaning that <coughs> the world is brought into such order that a child doesn't have to fear these things anymore. Um, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. <coughs> a really you know, Im important key text that they would have been familiar with. And it's possible that that is part of the illusion, uh, not the illusion, but the allusion with an A that John is playing, playing with here when he refers to the sevenfold spirit. And then, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So, part of the reason I think John orders it this way is because what the text is looking forward to, uh, and so Jesus is given the final place here instead of the Spirit, is the text in John's narrative is looking forward to Jesus finally taking full reign of the the earth over the kings of the earth so there's christ the faith faithful witness uh so during his life that's what he did he witnessed to uh, the kingdom of god firstborn of the dead that witness resulted in his literal death and his resurrection from the dead was a vindication that he was the faithful witness and in being vindicated being raised and ascending to sit at the right hand of god again throne room language he takes his mantle as the ruler of kings on earth and i'm going to stop here soon but i hear basically we have most of the characters so if you think of revelation as also a narrative or a you're watching a movie again movies are good examples um, you got to introduce your hero your protagonists and your antagonists and the other characters early on and expect them to come into some kind of engagement or or conflict and here the prota ultimate protagonist is God and we're going to have conflict between Jesus, the rightful ruler of kings on the earth, and the kings on the earth. He's already had conflict with Rome in his, in his role as faithful witness. Rome put him to death. He has claimed the mant mantle of rightful ruler and the, right, the rulers of the world are not going to accept this as they should. Um, and you're going to see the conflict, and of course that conflict for the early church was that they experience the, the wrath and the resistance of, of the kings of the earth. So they go, some of them go the, the way of Jesus and are actually put to death. So uh, we'll get to that. But that's, you know, the, just even just the first couple verses, there's so much going on. Um, and I'm just, you know, slowly walking through this text. 
it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity to just walk through Revelation and it, and it's such a good way to just learn the text carefully. Um, and basically, as I slowly walk through the text to enjoy it again myself and to learn from it and enrich my understanding, I'm basically just inviting you on this walk with me as we go slowly through the text. And I, I have no long, how, idea how long this is going to take. I don't want to rush through it. It's just I'd like to take my time and step through and see what jumps out at me. And I think in other episodes I'll probably, as we get more deeper into John's visions and his description of the problems and issues in the early churches, that my mind will probably take me on to connect it to things going on uh, in the world today in our contemporary experience because from a biblical perspective new testament perspective we're still living in what they call the present age uh, another way of saying is that we live in the already not yet there are things about god's kingdom that are already active in the world um, but it's not yet come to completion so we're still in the midst of what john is describing in revelation so you know just you're welcome to walk along with me as I do this and uh, I hope you get something out of it thanks for joining me for I think we covered two more verses today see you next time and go through it a little faster than I am in this podcast, then check out my blog, www.popchrist.com. That's www.popchrist.com. And look for my post, My Picks for the Best Books on the Book of Revelation. It's actually my most popular post of all time. So again, that's www.popchrist.com. That's my blog. And look for my picks for the best books on the book of Revelation. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Star-Crossed Kingdoms. If you like this content, well, you probably already know what to do like subscribe and please share also feel free to send in your questions just keep them friendly and conversational and that way i'll be far more likely to respond to them until next time grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ